Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, O Lord, all our actions by thy holy inspirations and carry them on by thy gracious assistance so that every prayer and work of ours may begin from thee and by thee be heaven through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Lady of Divine Grace. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There is a, you can actually find it out online, there's a time in which Pope Benedict, God rest his soul, was asked the question why he didn't like St. Thomas. And his response was he was too clear. And the, uh, what this tells us, uh, this actually is kind of a window. Um, I think he was a man who was striving for holiness. I just don't think he really understood what it was. That's just my own personal opinion. But, um, and I think he was a good man, etc. But there was, there's something about what he said, which I think is very revelatory about that generation, which I'm going to circle around about why I think that generation had a distaste for clarity. But first we want to talk about why, what is it with human beings that we want clarity about certain things? We know this just from our own personal experience. If someone um, comes to us, like suppose we need, um, you know, a window put in in our house and we have a little construction project and we go to this guy and we say, you know, um, how much is this going to cost? Oh, a lot. Well, that, we're not interested in that. That's too vague. Well, do you have an idea of it? Yeah, it'll be. It'll probably cost you a lot of money to do that. We're still not interested. We want to know. It's going to cost you four hundred and seventy-five dollars, right? That's what we want to know. We want to know the. We want. With, we have a certain inclination towards precision. So, as the intellect, uh, the intellect by its very nature, in its inclination to know the truth. So, the very function of the intellect is to know the truth. That means that the truth is in conformity with reality. And the more the intellect becomes in congruity with reality, the more precise is our judgment. We realize it's not more than this, it's not less than this, it's not this, it's not that, it's this. So it's in that precision that we actually find satisfaction or um, the fulfillment of the, na- of the intellect and its desire to seek the truth. So when we seek that, um, or when we desire to actually know the truth, it takes a while for us to actually be able to make a series of judgments to get to the point where we can start judging things with a little bit more precision. And then as a result of that, we have a certain kind of clarity in relationship to it. So this is something, and we we see this also even just in the sciences, right? That uh, we don't want vagueness. I mean, now science is even especially the empirical sciences are starting to break down because it's all become agenda-driven. It's who's paying for what grant and this and that rather than actually the actual pursuit of the truth of the knowledge. But the point being is, is that as human beings, we actually want clarity. Another example would be if some guy had his daughter kidnapped and someone, he, he, he's, you know, as someone said, you know, if he asks, where's my daughter? He says, well, she's in the United States. Well, that's not good enough. I want to know what address she's at, exactly where she's at, so I can go get her. I'm not interested in some vague, indistinct thing. I want clarity about exactly where she is so I can go actually help her. It's the same thing in relationship even though to the sciences. As human beings, we want to really have clarity about how things work and how they function. And this is just a natural inclination. Now, we talked about in the prior 
conference and also in other conferences I've talked about how that uh, inclination to know the truth in the intellect can start to become occluded or clouded by one of two things, either bad formation or sin, okay? But before we get that far, I want to make another observation. So, you've seen this a hundred times, but now you'll see it a hundred and one times. So, we have five senses. The information from that, those five senses are unified by the common sense power, and that's expressed into the imagination. Now, the senses by nature operate within a certain set of limits. So it means that if we're going to have an image that's going to give us clarity about what's outside those limits, there's certain things that are going to have to be done in order for us to gain knowledge of that. And even those things that are within these limits, the senses a lot of times don't give us as distinct a knowledge about those things as we would like to have, right? So there are certain times when we might see something or feel something and it takes us a while to kind of feel it for a while and then we can kind of start making some judgments and trying to figure out, okay, that it seems like it's this. An example was one time I found this one thing. I could not figure out for the life of me what this thing was. And so I, I, I went to my, my mom and dad, or my mom, and they're like, I don't know what it is. And I went to my brother and says, no. So I went to my dad and he looks at it and he feels it for just a little bit, and he says, it's fungus, right? It's basically a mushroom. And I'm like, and then I look at him like, there it is, right? But, it, but so the point being is, is a lot of times our senses, even what our senses give us, they only give us, A, they're in a certain limitation range, so we don't see, for example, inside, we don't see into the, um, the uh, infrared, we don't see into the ultraviolet range. We just see what's in the visible light range. And so there's things outside of that. But even within the confines of that, there's, there's a, not as, as much precision sometimes as intellectually we would like. So they give us information, but it's not as precise as we would like. This information that is expressed into the imagination in the form of an image, as I mentioned. And then the cogitative power looks at the image, it goes back in the memory, finds the information, and it brings it back in the context of the image. Now here... This is a key step in precision in our knowledge. If my cogitative power, if the associations in my cogitative power are perfect, it means that whenever the image comes in, the cogitative power is gonna go back, look at memory, in the memory. It's going to, it's, the cogitative power is also limited, but it's going to at least get, bring the information into the image that's true and accurate or that is properly associated or not associated with this particular image. And so the image and the preparation by the cogitative power, that information being brought back in, the image is going to be filled out in a more precise with greater information if it's perfect. If it's not or if it's, uh, if it's not properly habituated or if I got false... Uh, if I got false associations, well, let's deal with each one of those. If I have false associations, then what's going to happen is it's going to bring the wrong kind of information back into the image. And so when I make an act of judgment, when the possible intellect makes an act of judgment by St. Thomas of Vivian, converting back to the image, actually for him it's converting back to the phantasm, which is, we call it image, but it's phantasm in Latin. So as it converts back, that image is going to contain associations and information 
that are not going to be accurate. And so my, my judgment of the matter is either going to be false or it's not going to have the same level of precision that it actually should. Whereas if it's built up properly, I'm going to have a more and more precise uh, judgment in relationship to it. If that's if it's if it's false, then that, that's what's going to happen. It's going to end up falsifying the image, and then my judgment is go, is likely to be false, or it, it's not going to be clear or accurate. It's just going to be there's not going to be the same kind of a clarity. We experience this actually with ourselves. You know, a lot of times. So, for example, if I've had bad experiences in my past, and then somebody says something that's in that kind of range, but they're actually meaning one thing. The cogitative power brings this information up, and then I make a judgment. I don't have clarity of judgment about what the person actually said about reality out here. What I have is a messed up phantasm or a phantasm that's messed up or an image that's messed up. And so my judgment is not accurate or clear. And by clear, we mean that there's very dis there's clear distinction in the parts of the of the image, etc. Okay. If it's if my cogitative power isn't well habituated yet, and this is what you see with children, we see this. A lot of times, kids don't have clarity about certain issues because their cogitative power hasn't been habituated enough to give them the right information to be build that up to the point where they know, okay, this is what the actual story is. Parents do this all the time. They have to adjust the information to the kid based upon where where the cogitative power is in its in its development because they know they can't give it some kind of information because the kid can't process it. And yet they have to give him a certain amount of information so that he slowly builds up so that he has greater and greater clarity about a particular thing. Okay. Of course, then this image, then what also the uh, perspective and the cogitative power moves the emotions. But once I have the emotion, the experience of that emotion, uh, both on a sensory level, gets merged back into the image as part of my experience of the thing. So if somebody says something and then I have emotional reaction, that's merged with my image and that becomes part of my, uh, the image in, in this particular set of experience is in relationship. Now the emotions, when I have an antecedent emotion, not a consequent emotion, but when I have an antecedent emotion, all antecedent emotions cause contraction, which basically means what? The emotion, when it gets merged with the image, draws the focus or judgment of the intellect to the aspect or, uh, or the aspects of the emotion, whether it's fear or whether it's hatred or whatever. It draws me into looking really at the emotion of my experience. It draws me inwards, which means it abstracts me from the senses or from reality. That's what antecedent emotion by nature does. So we have to, that's one of the reasons why antecedent emotions or appetites by nature are going to affect my image and therefore cut me off from the reality, which means I'm not going to have clarity about the reality of the situation or as much clarity. I might still know, okay, look, the person didn't mean it this way, but, but the fact is, is that it's, if, if I had no antecedent emotion, I could just eat freely and easily just say the person had no idea what they were saying, right? Okay. The other part of it is, as the judgment starts to become habituated, and I start to develop habits in, the, in my possible intellect, 
as these habits are built up, then that be, these habits then begin to determine how I ju- make a judgment. Why is this important? Well, in normally in when we learn something, first of all, it comes into our imagination, we get the right kinds of images, and then if we get the right kinds of images, then I can make a judgment, I can make a true judgment, and once I make that true judgment, I start the habit, and as I keep judging that, the truth of that proposition or the truth of that thing in relationship to the image, then it means I start to penetrate and understand reality deeper and deeper because the judgment is the reflection of the reality because it's true. And so what happens is as those habits in relationship to the truth begin to build up, that's what St. Thomas calls scientia, which is knowledge, but it's also from which we get science from. What does this mean? For example, my, bro, my cousin who's got his doctorate in pharmaceutical chemistry, he and I can look at the same thing, the reality of the same thing. My image is of this thing, but his cogitative power based on his past series of images which have been stored in memory and the training of the cogitative power to look at it from this way and not that way, etc. Then over the course of time, when something comes in, his image is prepared in a much fuller fashion than mine. And because he has the habit of judging this thing as it is based on the truth, then his ability to see in the image through an act of judgment much deeper and much clearer, that is more distinctly, because remember clarity comes from distinction, as he's able to penetrate that deeper, he can see in the, even though we're looking at the exact same thing, he can see it in a much deeper and a much clearer fashion than I have. So what do we do when we want clarity? Well, we, we instinctively know, if I to get clarity, what I need to do is, I need to, I need to put my senses in contact with enough information and, get, and start building my image so that I can do it. We do this all the time, it's just called information, right? So like, for example, if, we, if we're kind of confused about the nature of what's going on in the COVID situation, then we have to kind of do a bit of a deep dive into finding out Okay, what is this thing? How does it work? What is who's who's making the money off, etc. So we can get a so that we get enough. Uh, the image becomes sufficiently developed so that when we make an act of judgment, I can see with precision the truth of the matter. That's what clarity actually is. Clarity and precision are one and the same thing. Saint Thomas says something really interesting. He says confusion is when you have two contraries in the intellect at the same time. And he says the way you solve confusion is you have to get rid of one of the contraries. So that being the case, what do we have to do to get one of the contraries? Well, you either have to start sorting it out and start sorting your images out and start looking at it or making judgments, which make me realize, well, this part of the part can't be true because it violates this principle or that truth or what have you. So that can't be right. So it must be this. Or I have to get, find out the information in reality, get, the, do more, get more information about the thing in order for me to make a proper judgment. Okay. Of course, remember when I said that this is then, the information or the truth is then presented to the will, and then the will can move the intellect to look at it from a different point of view to even get greater clarity too. So it can move the intellect. I need to look at this from this point of view to see what's going on there and to make different judgments. And it can all, the will also moves the lower faculties. Okay. 
So the lack of clarity can come from limitations in the senses, it can come from cognitive power, either falsely or not associating it right, it can come from bad intellectual habits or not having sufficient habits, because the more habit I have, the more I'm able to penetrate the truth of the thing, and so I'm able to understand things better, which means I have a greater science, scientific knowledge of it, okay? That all being said, so then the question becomes, why is it that Benedict would say, Pope Benedict would say, the thing I didn't like about St. Thomas is that he was clear. Well, first of all, we have a natural inclination to clarity. There, this is a story which uh, I might edit this out. I'm, the, the real issue boils down to is, you know, we have a natural inclination to want clarity. So what would get it to the point where people didn't want clarity? Sometimes it can just be by bad formation. This is one of the things we're seeing in our culture. People don't want you making, a, making distinctions in relationship to, like, for example, the distinction between a person's race and their moral virtue, right? So really, we should be judging people based on their moral virtues because... The moral virtues are operative habits. They determine how people are act. They would be likely to determine how people are going to act in the future. It tells you something about their character, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. Whereas the color of their skin is a non-operable accident, and it means nothing. Right? Okay. On that level. Okay. So, but they don't want you making that distinction. You know? So, if you're white, you're automatically bad. Right? So, as I mentioned in the last conference, this is... They don't want these distinctions being made, and anytime you start making a distinction, they start getting angry with you. You kind of watch this with Ben Shapiro, and I think Shapiro's got his issues, and I don't always agree with him, but once in a while, he's able to just hone in and just nail people, and they're left just flabbergasted because people very often work in this vagueness, and they think they're smart because they're using terminology, etc., but they're not having any kind of precision, and because he's, he's a man who's had, a, he, you can tell he has great logic skills, he understands what the informal fallacies are and what the formal fallacies are, and he's able to hone in and nail people on that. And that flabbergasts people, and, but it just tells you that, and when he does that, they get angry with him because he's showing them that their woke position is completely illogical or contrary to reality and reason, and that drives them nuts. But that in there tells you the story. The moral of the story is, so it's either by bad formation, which we're seeing with some of these kids now, or it's by sin. In other words, as they commit sin, then what happens is every time you commit a sin, two things happen. One, when you commit a sin, see, our wills, free will is such that the, te- the definition of free will is it's, a uh, attribute, so freedom is an attribute in the will by which it's able to choose between goods, okay? And that means that true freedom is one in which in the will there's nothing that fixes it to one thing or another as far as, it, it, there's nothing that fixes it either by habit, right? So in, in, in by habit, what does this mean concretely? It means every time you make a choice in relationship to a created thing, your will begins an initial fixedness in relationship. It determines how it's going to relate to that thing, and it starts to fix itself in relationship to that thing over the course of time. And the more you choose it, the more your will becomes fixed in relationship to this. This is how human beings work 
over the course of time, as we make, make choices, our will becomes more and more fixed in relationship to the particular things that we chose. choose. In relationship to God, if our choice gets to the point where we only choose God and we perfectly detach from all created things, that means that our will in relationship to created things, because it has no fixedness based upon our choices, because we've always chose God who's the universal good, it means that we have perfect freedom in relationship to those things that are created. That's what that basically means. So the more holy we become, where God becomes our choice, then we become freer in relationship to created things. But the more we choose created things, the more we become fixed on those particular things. And that means that in the will, uh, we start to build up our attachments in relationship to that. Attachments are just a fixedness in relationship to something. That w the will then moves the lower faculties and confirms the cogitative powers antecedent emotion or redirects it towards something so that the cogitative power begins to make associations and so we start habituating the cogitative power, but then we also start developing in the emotions, if we start following antecedent emotions or confirming them in a specific way. If we follow the antecedent emotion, the antecedent emotions become attached to the thing that they're inclined towards as well. So each time we follow antecedent emotion, we're increasing our attachments. Whereas if we only have consequent emotion, which is when the possible intellect presents the truth to the will, and then the will moves it, and then from that arises the consequent emotion. If it's moderated and always in accord with the truth, it means that the emotions don't develop an attachment to that thing because it's governed by the universal aspect of reason. Okay, let me unpack that a little bit. The truth, the truth is always universal in some respect. There's, it's a, the lower faculties deal with concrete, individual, material things. Whereas the possible intellect deals with universal abstract concepts. And so as the lower faculties follow the possible intellect more, the lower faculties become more universalized in their ability to engage in particular things. They follow more universal reason. And it's the same thing in relationship to the emotions. So what happens is, is that I don't have any, over the course of time, I stop when I'm following reason all the time, I stop having an emotional attachment to that particular thing. Okay, why am I going into all this? I mean, it sounds like an overextension of something that I could have just said one line, which is probably true. Okay, it basically boils down to this. If in my will, because of the choices I've made in the past in relationship to particular things, usually in relationship to my emotions and I have attachments, it means that when the when the truth comes into my mind and I make a judgment about the truth of it, if it's contrary to that attachment, it causes me pain. Mm -hmm. And that's what that generation did not want to deal with. They didn't want to embrace their cross. You can listen to that conference I gave on the sixth generation. They didn't want to embrace their cross. And so anything that was going to go, that was going to, uh, any truth, it was going to go against this, the emotions they didn't want. The clearer the truth, the more precise it is, the more we have to die to ourselves because it, we, as the truth becomes more specific and more distinct, it starts excluding any possible inclinations we might have to the falsity or the false understanding or to this nebulous understanding that we had. And as it becomes more distinct, it means that the life of the emotions start to die. We become more detached. 
This is why pursuit, sometimes you'll see this, a lot of times guys that are that are really pursuing intellectual knowledge, they start to experience a kind of de emotional detachment from things because their the lower faculties are becoming more universalized because it's looking at things from the point of view of reason, which is universal, rather than to the emotions, which are more particular. Okay. So when the, the but so as this becomes clearer, then it also, the intellect becomes more fulfilled. And so we've actually experienced this ourselves, where intellectually, all of a sudden, we see the truth with a certain amount of clarity. Emotionally, we're in pain. But intellectually, if our will is in the right place, where we want to know the truth, then that brings us actual joy in seeing the truth to fight, to fight the fact that this is, we know this is brutal and it's going to cause me suffering. Okay. That generation didn't have it. For some reason or other, a majority of them didn't like it. So the first part about it is they didn't like clarity because the truth very often mitigates against antecedent appetite and it causes pain to them. The second part of it is, and this is another thing, is that one of their emotional attachments was, and this is something that is in academia in general, is, is that you'll get people who through, float through academia who want to make a name for themselves. And so what they're going, the, then what happens is though, in order, to, in order to make a name from yourself, you have one of two paths. You're either gonna have to crawl on the, shoulder of the shoulders of the giants who went before you and hope that you can reach the level to where you can stand on their shoulders and see farther and see more based upon standing on their shoulders. In other words, you have to take the entire intellectual tradition and hope that at some point you're gonna be able to study it well enough to be able to help to hone it down and give greater clarity to it and not mess everything up in the process, right? And that's a pretty rare individual. So this is, you have to get to that point. Or you can branch off into novelty and make everything sound nice and flowery and, and feed people's ears, tickle their ears, and so that people get to liking you and then they start following on YouTube. <laughs> okay, so, and, and these people are listening to me right on YouTube now. Okay, but the point being is, and that's not what my, my goal is, obviously. The point being is, is that the, if you look at the greatest generation, most of them knew they didn't have the intellectual, they did not have the intellects of, a Thomas Aquinas or a, uh, a, an Augustine or a Robert Bellarmine or a Cajetan or a Suarez, let alone someone like Gerlugu Lagrange or Fabro or some of these other guys that had gone through the 1900s and were intellectual powerhouses and had actually contributed to these intellectual sciences. They knew they weren't on that level. And so the only way they were going to be able to make a name for themselves, because you're going to have to be greater than, or at least on their level in some degree, in order to have a name for yourself. They knew that wasn't possible. So what they did is they branched out and went with novelty because it tickled people's ears and caught their attention. And so they became famous as being intellectuals when in point in fact, when you read their stuff, there's, it's not there. One of the other signs that, that you see in relationship with these, and so the, another thing you see with these people People like the Congars, the Skillabacks, the Ronners, these guys. When you read their stuff, you start to discover they're not true scholars. True scholars go back to the original sources. Even if they've read somebody say something about it, they go back to the original sources and they take a close look at the original text to see and study those things, the original sources, in order so that they know 
that what these secondary sources has said lines out with what this guy says, right? And so they have a tremendous knowledge both of the primary and the secondary sources. That generation didn't have that. They did not have a really good knowledge of the primary sources. A lot of the stuff that they were saying was based on secondary sources. So one time I was reading this one book by Congar, and he said, Saint so-and-so said X. I'm like, that just doesn't sound right. So I go dig it up, read what Saint X said. I'm like, he said the exact opposite. That's not at all what he said. So I was talking to a friend of mine who is, you know, one of the top scholars that I know of alive today. And I said to him, I said, these guys can't read. And he says, no, they didn't read. He said, what it basically boils down to is they're, they, they, they basically took it from some secondary author rather than verifying it themselves. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, so either way, they're not true scholars because either they can't read, which means they're not a scholar, or they're not doing the work to be a true scholar like Gerlagu Lagrange and Fabro and these other guys did. They're not true scholars. And he said, yeah, that's basically it. The point being is, is people that get into that category who want to make a name for themselves and lack the precision in pursuing that, you know, looking at the primary sources and doing what they need to do. This is one of the phenomenons we're actually seeing online where you've got all these guys who are putting up a shingle on, I'm a Catholic expert in theology because I have a bachelor's in theology from, you know, Kerfluffle University. Mm-hmm. You know, and they get up there and the, the, the statements they make are just daft because they're not even going back and actually researching it. In fact, I was mentioning the bug. One, there's this one guy I was noticing. If you look behind him, all the books on his shelves are all in English. Well, that tells me he's not a scholar. So basically, he should just shut up. I mean, he's not a scholar because a true scholar is going to have all sorts of different languages, etc., on that shelf because he's got to go look at the original sources. It's not good enough to read St. Thomas through a translation. You actually have to read him in Latin at some point if you're going to claim to be a scholar. Okay, well, the problem with people like that is they don't want someone coming in who's super precise and very clear. Because if he is, he's likely to fall, find error in them and he's in their writings or in their thinking. And it's also likely to be something contrary to their appetites. This is one of the biggest reasons why I get criticized constantly online is because I'll find something from a father. I'll say, this is what he said. This is the precision with what he said. And it mitigates or grates against some guy's appetite in thinking that he thought he knew this. So, so let me give you an example. I made the observation that Pius IX said that if the theologians, and the theologians, according to the authors, are those from 11, of the theological schools from 1100 to 1750, if all of those people, in, if those theologians of the theological schools from that time were unanimous that something was of the faith, then de facto it was infallible. That's what Pius IX says, right? So I make this observation that, you know, those who are the, the theologians who are the theological schools, if they're unanimous, then it's it. And I even quote Pius IX in this, and this guy just brushes me out. That's not true. That's just ridiculous. Theologians aren't infallible. Dude, you don't even know what the term theologian even means, right? And so what's happening, and then, then what ends up happening is once he realizes he's made the error, because his appetites are disordered, they get angry and they hate you and they want to tear you down rather than like, he's right. I was wrong. Let's get this cleared because their, their attachment, and this is the real problem with the people from the greatest generation, their attachment wasn't to the truth. 
Their attachment was to the things that fed their appetites. And their ap one of their appetites was fame. They wanted to be known as a great theologian when in point in fact they're not. People actually ask me, do you think that Benedict, John Paul II were, were you know, great intellectuals and theologians? And I always tell them no. Especially, well, part of the difficulty with Pope uh, John Paul II is, is that he got into phenomenology, which just degenerates into this vagueness, so you never have clarity, um, because it's all about describing your experience rather than actually dealing with reality. Um, it doesn't mean that there weren't things that he wrote that weren't very beneficial and useful. That's not the point. And then with Benedict, it's the same difficulty, because there were times when Benedict was writing in certain areas where he was saying things which... Uh, I don't know what to make of it. Uh, let me give you an example. So from, the, from after the council, First Vatican Council till about 1930, there was a series of doctrinal works that were put out that deal very decisively on an intellectual level about what's called the branch theory. Now the branch theory is, is that there's this one church which Christ established and the various churches like the Protestants and the... Th and the Anglicans and this and that. We all are part of this thing by various degrees of participation. Well, aside from the fact that it violates the principle of excluded middle, look, either you're in or you're out. There's no degrees of participation here, so it's just irrational on that level. But putting aside, putting that aside, there's, I, I just can't imagine that Benedict wasn't aware of the fact that that generation had done a death blow to that theory, the branch theory, based on the principle of intergood and uh, just hordes and hordes and hordes of reasons showing how that theory was absolutely daft, I'll probably because it came from the Anglicans, but it was just absolutely daft, right? And it just had no way. So, but then, of course, modernism hit. So, that, so then what does Benedict do? As the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith, he comes up and basically promotes that branch theory right in the document Dominus Jesus. And you're just like, how can you have any intellectual honesty knowing that that thing was just destroyed intellectually and then promote it later. So I don't know if he was unaware of it. I can't imagine it. Go, having gone through the seminaries in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, that was right on the heels where all of that was being discussed and dealt with. So I just can't imagine it unless he just didn't accept it um, or and, unless there's just an attachment to the clarity because if the destruction of the branch theory is true, that means that only Catholics, that is, those who are united to the Catholic Church in some fashion, are the ones that are saved, right? And that bothered them. They would prefer to have this nebulous one church of which there is various degrees of participation. It almost sounds like a drunk. Various degrees of participation. You know, and, uh, because in that vagueness, then you can feel comfortable about the fact that your Protestant buddy over here is a heretic and is likely to fry because he's formally rejected what the Catholic Church teaches, right? There's that kind of attitude towards that. And so the point being in all this, not to degenerate into a rant, but the point in all of this is that that generation, the reason they didn't like clarity and the reason people don't like clarity in relationship is because it's an appetitive attachment and it causes pain when the truth is actually spoken. This is why, because people are so wed to their appetites now, and they're actually mentally ill, so they don't even have use of reason a lot of times, but as the truth is spoken, you're going to see them become more and more acrimonious and vicious as time goes on. So, any questions? 
I have a question, Father. Um, so, uh, the, your observation about you know certain teaching documents being uh, word salads, right? They're, yeah. They're, they're actually incomprehensible. No. Yep. Whether it was by intention or you know by just stupidity or whatever, um, and obviously we're making a distinction between that whatever that is. And someone's inability to just understand something that's clear or right, right. Yeah. So something that is truly incomprehensible. What? Um, let's say it's some official teaching of some kind, you know, a papal bull or an encyclical that's released or something, something of a lower degree of ascent, but right. you know, still magisterial. Uh, if it's truly incomprehensible, does it even qualify as teaching? Does it? <laughs> I mean, because it, it strikes me that, like, at a certain point, if something's incomprehensible, do, do we have any obligation to even validate it as teaching? No, we don't, for this reason. So there's what they call the theological notes. So there's varying degrees of certitude that we have in relationship to certain things. So, for example, something that a council defines, we know de facto, if you don't believe this, you, you're not Catholic. And we have absolute certainty. We have... Uh, that we have theological and moral certitude that this is the actual truth. As you go down, that certitude begins to decline. Well, if they put something out in an encyclical that doesn't have any certitude, then it technically speaking has no theological note, except maybe it's molisonons, you know, it just sounds bad or whatever the case is, or just is, um, it, you know, be the, if it had any whatsoever, it'd be at the absolute lowest. But if it has no clarity, then we can't have any certitude, and therefore it has no theological note, and therefore it binds nobody on anything. Okay, thank you. Among others, yeah. Well, I was thinking in terms of one time I was sitting in the refectory at the seminary for the Diocese of Lincoln, and someone, this one guy, Pope John Paul II, had just come out with a document, and I had read it. And this guy comes up to me, and he points out, first of all, it's one of these, it's like 180 pages long. Which, at the minute, it, there's a real lack of understanding that you have, encyclicals have to be treated like legislation. The more of it, the less it's binding. So the, more you, the longer it is, the less people are going to pay attention to it. Okay. But that being said, he said, um, he points this passage out, and he says, what does this mean? So I read it, and I looked at him, and I said, I don't know. He says, what do you mean you don't know? I said, he's a phenomenologist. He's describing his experience of the thing, which means he understands it, or he's giving expression to what he understands. That doesn't translate into us understanding any aspect of it. I said, I don't think this is comprehensible. Right, and so, and I'm not hacking at the guy. I'm just saying, once you choose that method, this is what you're going to get. So... Almost as if, like, I think just once you control your appetites, have less emotion, reason just becomes so much more clarified. That's exactly it. Yeah, really, yeah. it's like your books. You can just read it. If you don't have all this emotion and you don't have all the drama, you're, everything makes sense. sense. It's yeah. like St. Thomas Aquinas. It's straightforward. It's going to offend you. It might even freak you out because yeah. it's reality. Hell is real. This is yeah. real. And so, you know, it, if you have any attachments to sin or some kind of emotion yeah. or with someone else, then or you don't want to give anything up, or some right. kind of advice. Yeah, and I think know. that when it, when it comes to, you know, we talk about how you have to be willing to follow the truth regardless of the personal cost. Mm -hmm. That means you have to be willing to suffer to pursue the truth. 
And, you know, sometimes there's suffering, like the, the, uh, um, the uh, not because I didn't believe it and not because I didn't think St. Thomas hadn't nailed it and that it wasn't true and not because I was a wed to the Molinist position on relationship to grace, but the first time I read St. Thomas's discussion of predestination, it was painful for some reason. Now, obviously, that means there was some attachment somewhere. I think St. Thomas is absolutely correct in his understanding of uh, the Catholic understanding of predestination. Um, but what's interesting is, is that online, because I've done a thing on predestination, there's these commentators between 25 and 35 who basically say Father Ripperger's a heretic and he needs to be condemned. What they don't realize is that their position, which is the Mullins position, was this close to being condemned. It wasn't until the Pope just said, okay, everybody just shut up and stop talking about it, right? Mm. And the point being is, is that... Um, uh, the point being is, is that, uh, and Gary Gugagrange, I think, does the best in laying it all out, but there has to be a willingness to suffer interiorly. It also means that in order to pursue the truth, there has to be profound docility. If somebody comes up to you, this actually happened to me twice recently. Some guy came up to me. He's a very good man. He, was, had, no, he had no guile whatsoever in just pointing out, uh, it wasn't a doctrinal thing. It was a factual error that I had stated in one of my conferences. It was a very minor thing. But he said, you said this, but actually it's this, right? It was something that I attributed to Our Lady when it was actually Our Lord who had said it. And I said, send me the information. He sent it to me. I saw it. I'm like, there it is, right? And so my intention is now, in the next interview, is to... I'm not, I'm not, the guy always asks me, did you say this? You know, because people are saying all sorts of stuff I never said. Um, did you say this? I'm going to say yes, and actually correct it right there. Because my desire should be not just that I know the truth, but my desire should be that other people know the truth and that I don't get in the way of that. You know, it's better that people actually think less of me as an intellectual and as a scholar, um, and they know the truth than the other way around. And so this is, uh, in fact, a true scholar is someone who's, I mean, this is what you see with Plato. I mean, it's a whole thing about, you know, with Socrates. He was just, he was willing to be led by anybody who actually knew the truth, you know, and be corrected or what have you. Of course, he was doing the most of the correcting. But that's what you have to, you have to be willing to do. Is it just to the faithful if a pontiff doesn't have clarity, if he's confusing people? Uh, it's actually contrary to divine precept. Uh, it's actually in a book that I'm coming out with here shortly. It's done writing. It's, um, but it's basically the Pope has an obligation. He told Christ, uh, Peter, Christ told Peter, confirm the brethren. That's a part of the divine positive law that applies specifically to the papacy. And so anything he does contrary to that, it doesn't mean everything he does, he has to be looking at my confirming the brethren. But he can never do anything contrary to confirming the brethren. And if he does, it's contrary to divine positive law. Which is a great matter. It can be. It depends on the nature of the, oh, sure. the topic. So if he just talks on an airplane... Doesn't mean much. But it, but it gets to be like scandal. Did yeah. you hear what, but you know, and then all the people who were talking heads on yeah. YouTube were all over it, but how, how grave is that for a pontiff? Uh, it depends. I mean, if he's doing it on purpose, it's a, it's a huge problem. It's, it's active scandal. On the other hand, we can never take passive scandal. We can never take scandal by any of that. I mean, there's two reasons. First is, 
We're now, li- this is what I keep telling everybody, we don't live in a time where you can be ignorant of your faith. You actually have to know the distinctions of when you're bound to follow what he says and when you're not. Because there's times in which you have to follow what he says. There's times in which it might confirm what the tradition has always said. So even though it's not infallible, you have to follow it, etc. That's why I wrote the books, uh, Binding Force of Tradition and Magisterial Authority. So you have, to, you have to know the different degrees and how he's talking to know exactly how much am I bound to believe what he says. So you have to know that because today you can't just say, oh, well, whatever he says, that's what I'll believe. Because if you do that, you're going to end up in error. Right. Okay. Uh, the second component of it is, so in addition to that, is that it, we, we should, it, it doesn't matter what anyone says or does, it should never have any impact whatsoever on our faith and our growth in virtue. Whether it's the Pope on down, shouldn't make any impact ultimately. And so if he says something, you know, if he manifests hoof and mouth disease, well, there it is. <laughs> Right, and so we just we know that when he's doing these things off the cuff and thing, he's not speaking by virtue of his office. He's not doing this, that, or the other thing. He's not speaking ex cathedra. So you just like, well, it's contrary to what we know as the faith, as the truth of the faith. So, in fact, that's one of the reasons why I talk about in those two books that the remote rule, ultimately for belief, is the tradition, and everything that he says, he has an obligation to conform to that remote rule. And our obligation is to accept everything he teaches that's in conformity with that rule. If, it, if he deviates from it, then we know we're not to believe it. We do this instinctively as Catholics. When the German bishops get up there and say that, you know, homosexual acts are actually a good thing and the church needs to actually rethink their thing. What's our natural tendency as Catholics? Blow them off. We know that's actually simply not true. Why? Because the remote rule, which is what the church has always taught us, we know that's what it's always taught, and that's what's true, not what this guy's saying. And the same thing applies to the Pope, ultimately. Okay. If you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing. Benedictio Deo omnipotentis, patris et fili, et spiritus, et super.